It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. I don't know where to start at with today's. I, I don't know because she's uh, she has done so much for her community, her people, herself, and those around her. She has had an impact on so many lives, not not locally, internationally, worldwide. She has stood up and been counted many times and still fighting and being counted. I have a dear friend and because of her, uh, I've been exposed, I have been educated, learned, unlearned, relearned, retaught. I have Miss Kathy Hambrick. What's your middle name, Miss Hambrick? Elizabeth. <laughs> I'm Miss Kathy Elizabeth Hambrick. I just knew it was a, it was a, it was a beautiful name. So that's the, I truly have the queen here. <laughs> I have the queen here. Welcome to Counter. Well, you know, sometimes we, in honor of our parents, we have to acknowledge sometimes the name they gave us. We sometimes outgrow those names as we become more and more educated. Uh, you're one of the only people out of maybe hundreds of interviews that I've done who ever asked me my middle name and in honor of my mother who gave me that name on the day she gave birth to me. She named, she gave me the middle name Elizabeth. That's a beautiful name. Yes. Very, very becoming of you. It's got a way of humbling everybody. So I didn't change the Elizabeth, but I did change the name I spelled Kathy. Oh. Kathy right. with an E. Okay, what was it spelled with before then? K-A-T-H-Y. Okay, why did, why E? When I was in the eighth grade, um, there were eight Kathys in the classroom. And there was a Kathy with a C, Kathy with a C and an IE at the end, K with an IE at the end. There were so many variations and similarities between the Kathys that I told my teacher, I showed up at class one day and I said, I'm Kathy with an E. And ever since eighth grade, my social security number and everything has had an E on it. <laughs> so you changed your own name in eighth grade? I changed my own name in eighth grade. So you've been doing this for quite some time. You're making a difference, taking a stand for what's in your heart and what you want to do. Pretty much, I guess, what's in my heart and what's in my mind. And my father would tell me that uh, until you get an education, you do what I say in this house. <laughs> until you get your education, you do what they say over there at, there at that school. And um, Did you listen? <laughs> I don't know. You know me well enough to know. From a very young age, and this is what my uncles and aunts and older cousins have always told me, they say, Kathy, you are always, you were an unusual child, unusual in the sense that you had questions about everything. You know, back in the, uh, in the 50s and early 60s, children were to be seen and not heard. But I would always ask profound questions. I always had questions. I was always looking and reading the Jet magazines and Ebony magazines. I actually have a picture of myself on the floor at five years old with magazines spread out all around me and I'm pointing to the photos in the magazines. Through my brother Harold, I have a collection of about 200 vintage black magazines. So when we say that we need to teach children black history in, in schools, in public schools, you learn black, I learned black history at home. 
That's where it should be taught. Yes. Home. Yes. At a young age, you've already had the insight, intuition, the motivation to say you is what you want to be different. You was the only child. You was the only girl. I'm home. the only girl. So I, I got how many boys? Four. Four. Three older brothers, and then one younger brother. My next oldest brother is Donald, who is 12 years older than me. Then Harold was 14 years older than me. Um, uh, George was 14 years older than me. And then Harold was 16 years older than me. So um, I really had older brothers. My father had spinal meningitis and tuberculosis for 11 years. He was in and out of charity hospital for 11 years. So that accounts for the difference between the age of me and my brother Donald, because my dad was in the hospital, spinal meningitis and tuberculosis. And so once my father was, was healed and released from the hospital, um, a got, year later got, I was he, born. He got back in the rhythm of things. He huh? got back in the rhythm of things. <laughs> And uh, as, as they say, glory be to God, I was born. <laughs> I, was, I was born um, as, as the girl child. And then uh, five years later, my brother Daryl was born. He came behind me. So there's five of you all. Five of us, and I'm so, an only girl. Only girl. So that's another reason why you was, wanted to have your way to this. I pretty much had my way, I guess. Oh, you, already, you know you had your way. I pretty that may account for my temperament today, and I oftentimes have to apologize to my colleagues and friends. And also, you're a Capricorn, so you know you're yes. Capricorn, right? You're stubborn. Yeah. No, I, I would not say. I, I mean, th there, there, there may be an element of stubbornness to my temperament. I am, no doubt, have been always a leader, whether we were playing hopscotch. Um, jump rope, <laughs> jacks. Uh, I know you and I oftentimes talk about being a team player, like what you learn as being on a football team and, and being uh, uh, learning a team sport. I've always been kind of an individual sports person. So like racquetball, you know, my competitiveness has always been in individual sports. If I swim, I'm not swimming on the swim team. And really and truly, I'm not swimming to be competitive. I'm swimming to relax. And swimming is something you love to do too. Right? Swimming is something I absolutely love to do. But like the swimmer, you just like to be in a, on the out. You're an outdoors person. Too. I'm an outdoors person. I'm a person who likes to camp. I used to like to whitewater raft, high, high, uh, horseback hold riding. On, hold on, hold on. I've got a question. How you like to camp when you scared of bugs? Uh, well, I my camping my camping experience came from my college days. Uh, well, even high school days in California, and I must say, California must not have bugs, because uh, bugs all over the world. But to put it this way: their bugs are in no way com in comparison to the bugs of Louisiana. That's right, Louisiana is a class all by itself. Oh, Louisiana, and 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 too leading to, you know, my research about why slavery was so harsh in Louisiana, and when you were told that you were going to be sold down river from any other place, um, uh, north, south, uh, northeast or west of us, if you were told you were going to be sent to Louisiana, you knew you were gonna be in for some hard times. And I knew when I moved back to Louisiana from California in 1991, 
I knew I was going to be in for some hard times. Well, in 1991, so that means you, 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 you was born in Louisiana. I was born in New Orleans New at Orleans. Char Charity Hospital. So you was born in, in Louisiana by way of Charity Hospital in New Orleans, but yes. you grew up where? I grew up in, um, in Southern California in Los Angeles. Um, my father uh, came back here to Louisiana and uh, I ended up going to high school in Gonzales at East Ascension High School. And then when I graduated from East Ascension, as a matter of fact, my parents asked me what I wanted for a graduation present. And I said, I want a plane ticket out of here and I don't ever plan to live in the South again. I tell students I've had an opportunity to teach, educate, and give tours to students of all ages from all over the world, and I always tell young people, never, never say what you will never do, because you really don't know what God has in store for you. And I had no idea I would be uh, the founder and director of Louisiana's first African-American museum. Louisiana first. Louisiana's first African-American museum. River, River Road African-American Museum and Gallery was the first of its kind in the state of Louisiana, or you mean in, in the state? In the state of Louisiana. We were the first. We were incorporated on, uh, or opened our doors on March 12, 1994, and 28 years ago. So we want to say happy 28th birthday to the River Road African-American Museum and it was gallery, now called, we call short for RAM. We call it short for RAM. When I first incorporated the museum as a nonprofit 501c3, um, I had gallery on the name because I had done enough research to know the difference between a museum and a gallery. And I didn't want, I wanted to have a gallery which would be the place where we would sell art. Museums don't really sell you know, sell things. But as a gallery, you are, um, you can engage yourself in selling art. And I knew that we had artists like Malika Favorite and um, Alvin Batiste, and I wanted to help share their art through the, through the sale of their art, through, the, through a gallery space also. Well, well you, you was born in New Orleans, but your family's from where? Slidell. Okay, now how Slidell, Slidell played? What role Slidell played? My, mo my mother and father from Slidell, um, and um, my father went into the funeral business right after high school. They both went, graduated from St. Tammany um, Parish Training School, which was a Rosenwald school. Oh, it wasn't colored training school? No, it wasn't colored. It was <laughs> okay, St. Tammany okay. Parish Training okay. School. Well, the few that didn't have the word colored in front of it. That was one of the few that didn't have the word colored on it when they graduated from there, but both of my parents had high school education. My father um, went to work for his uncle, William Campbell, at Campbell's Funeral Home right out of high school. Where's that located? Uh, in Slidell. It was in Slidell. And then my mother was, my mother was a domestic. Uh, they both worked at the hospital in Mandeville, which I think was a sanitarium. It was a sanitarium, yeah, yes. They both worked there in the 50s. Um, and my father was fortunate enough to work in the laboratory there where he learned photo microscopic photography. So. 
he did his internship more or less in the funeral business at Campbell's Funeral Home and then went on to work in the laboratory at the hospital in Mandeville. My mother decided to become a nurse and got her uh, nursing degree from Lolly Kemp Hospital, had a nursing school in Hammond. And so she became an LPN and my mother was a nurse for 50 years and my father was in the funeral home business as um, the undertaker, mortician, funeral director, CEO and president of now uh, the funeral home we own, Hambrick's Family Mortuary. That's a pretty good story all by itself. So now, this started out in this, the big town of Slidell. My parents started off in Slidell. Yeah. How did you end up in California? Well, um, so my brothers, um, when my oldest brother Harold graduated from high school, also from St. Tammany uh, High School, um, you know what I realized lately that was that this was the time of Emmett Till. This was around that, 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 that explosion of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and uh, the Emmett Till incident. And I never had a chance to talk to my parents about this, but looking at the dates and the time frame and knowing the temperament of my father, knowing that we had uh, uncles and aunts who lived in Los Angeles as a part of that migration west. Uh, as many people left the south from Louisiana, went to California. I think my father wanted better opportunities and less discrimination and uh, picked up the family and moved to California. Every summer of my life from the time I was one years old, and I actually have a black and white photograph of my first trip, my mother holding me in her arms with my uncle brother and my Papa Will, grandfather, and Mama Dora, Mama that we called Mama Dote, um, at the edge of the Grand Canyon. And I was not even one years old, and that was my first trip in that migration west from Louisiana. Yes. Now, so you went, you, 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 you spent a lot of your time in California, but so when you had to come back to Louisiana, what was that like? How old were you then? Um, I was 13 when we moved back to Louisiana, and it was the years, those first years of um, desegregation here in Ascension Parish, and I really didn't understand what all of what the big deal was. What would you mean? Why that? Because I went to elementary school. I went to elementary school in Los Angeles. Uh, some of my best friends were Japanese children, uh, Japanese, um, uh, Mexican, East Indian. Uh, when I'd have my birthday parties, there were children from almost every culture imaginable, white children, that came to my birthday parties. We were all neighbors in California. And um, this was really culture shock because I couldn't understand. I remember, I really specifically remember the Gary Tyler, um, for lack of a better word right now, incident where there were protests at the schools all throughout along the River Road because Gary Tyler had been arrested. Who was for Gary Tyler? Gary Tyler was arrested for um, 
shooting a white student from a school bus in, I think it was in, um, in St. John the Baptist Parish. And um, he was a teenager and uh, he had been taken to jail. Um, he, he ended up in Angola. And so I can remember student protests, free Gary Tyler. Back, so you talk about it, you 12, 13 years old. I was maybe, by then I might have been 15, okay. 16, 15 years old or so. I also, uh, I, I just could not understand uh, how a young person who was not an adult, I remember them talking about the trial. I remember just the protests all throughout the schools, including the schools here in Ascension Parish. Um, I remember also being a part of student um, students involved in social change at East Ascension High School because we wanted a black history class taught there. So I'm talking about 1972, 1973. We actually had protests at the school that I was involved in. What school was this? East Ascension High School, in 1972-73. In Gonzales. In Gonzales, uh, now just two years after integration. Um, Did y'all fight a lot when you when they integrated the school back then? Um, I think there were, there, there were fights, but I think there were fights. There were fights at the school, but you know, I suppose all high schools have fights. Right. You know, you, we're in that same era. Right. You know, so kids, kids fight. Yes, there were fights, but I think the protests that I was involved in were for equality. Um, the protests that I was involved in were not advocating for violence and fights. It's just I couldn't understand why the majority of the football team could be black, but there were no black cheerleaders when we were always trying out for positions on the cheerleading squad. Um, I couldn't understand uh, why we didn't have a black history class. Uh, why, why didn't we have a black person on the homecoming court? You know, um, we were involved in Beta Club, we were involved in 4-H, Future Farmers of America, African American students were involved in every aspect of the extra, extracurricular and academic honors programs at the school, at the high school, but it seemed to be just a barrier, particularly for the girls, to get on the homecoming court and to be a part of the cheerleading squad. And so it worked out where I was, one of the first black cheerleaders, one of the first blacks on the homecoming uh, court with Cassandra McWilliams, who- uh, Cassandra, she went to LSU with us. Cassandra went to LSU, then she went to Loyola, became a lawyer, and- uh, Worked for the FBI, just retired. Became a top agent for the FBI. No, she, was, right she was doing media. She was with Channel 2 at one time in, the, in Louisiana, yeah. in the Baton Rouge area, I remember that. Yeah, so Cassandra's family and my, Cassandra's mother actually worked for my father at the funeral home. Cassandra's mother sold insurance when my father uh, worked for Purple Shield funeral home. So um, she and I and her uh, sisters and brother were all very, very close. And, now, uh, so, okay, so there was no people of African descent, females on the cheerleaders, nor homecoming court. Mm -hmm. So 
that's when the Angela Davis came out of you. You was gonna make some change over there. Well, you know, speaking of Angela Davis, remember how I said we would go back and forth to California every uh, every year? My brother Donald was in uh, uh, law school at Hastings Law School in uh, San Francisco, and. I would stay with him and his wife, Shirley, when I'd go to California during the summer, and they had an extensive library of black books. So I ended, you know, I would spend my summer reading these books. I mean, I was introduced to Leroy Jones and uh, Phyllis Wheatley and uh, Maya Angelou and uh, Toni Morrison and even learned about the Soledad Brothers and Patty Hearst and it was a part of that era of the 70s when Angela Davis and Stokely Carmichael was that next generation after the civil rights movement that that I came up in as a teenager. And so you decided, when, okay, by you leaving, being in California, thing was, was open. You didn't see, at least you didn't see or feel discriminated against. But you come back home south where you grew up at, mm -hmm. and now you have all kind of barriers that you've got to come overcome, fight through, and as a female, it's that much more harder. So you were determined to make a difference here, to make a change. Yeah, and so. it was through just asking the questions, why? Why not? Why aren't we? Why is it that we're, we're, we're trying out, we're giving our best, we're gymnasts, we're doing, we're beautiful, <laughs> we're black and we're beautiful. <laughs> you know, it's, um, why can't we be a part of this community um, and um, so, we so, are a part so, of this community. So what did you have to do to become part of, the, of this? Um, there were some protests at the school. There were some protests at the school. Um, what type of protests? Well, I can remember that, um, you know, it just took, say at the lunch hour, the black students would get together and we would select one candidate or two candidates who were going to run for the homecoming court. And we decided that we would all vote for that one candidate. So if every one of the black students were voting for these one or two candidates for homecoming court, uh, then... So, so y'all become politically involved. Then, politically, politics, po yeah. Gotta, gotta, gotta get y'all politics in order. Had to get our politics in you order. Say, that's why you don't like politics <laughs> to this day, then, huh? Well, yeah, because the rules change. You know, what rules? The, rule, the, <laughs> the rules. As soon as we learn the rules of how to play a game uh, in politics, or I call it a game, but as soon as we learn how to play the rules and follow the guidelines, the rules and the guidelines seem to change. So we're forever trying to um, stay abreast of how social change, how to be a part of social change and how to make things better for our community at large, how to make things better for our children so they won't have to, I, well, who would have imagined when you think about the, um, the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's happened in the last couple of years with uh, George Floyd and uh, Breonna Taylor and Sandra Bland, I never would have imagined 40 years later we're still in the back same, is, uh, we're still in, we're, we're back at square one. I never would have imagined after receiving my master's degree, having a family who is um, 
educated and living all over the world and every uh, career uh, you, you could imagine that here in America, um, <laughs> what, what you're taught as a young age should be the land of milk and honey, even if you're in California, New Jersey and out of the South, that we would still face so much discrimination and inequality. I never would have imagined at this age. It's land of milk and honey, but then he said you can have any. Oh, well, <laughs> don't get it twisted now. <laughs> it was the land of milk and honey. Got good milk and honey. That's all. Just, you, know, you just have to make sure you yeah, own yeah, your own bees yeah, and cows. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you know, you kind of it on in some, some some serious territories. But now you, so you in high school? Now you just junior high, high school. Um, by now I'm 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 a high school. So you I graduated. Became a cheerleader, you became a cheerleader in high school. I became a cheerleader in high school. I was a part of the Beta Club. I was part of the Future Farmers of America. Um, so you got was, involved. With, you 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 believed in getting involved. I, I believed in getting involved because I'm also I would say a very socially active person. Coming from Louisiana, we come from families where we're we're socially engaged. You know whether it's uh, being on the committee to plan our family reunion. Uh, I come from a long line of teachers, educators in New Orleans, uh, educators in Slidell, educators in New Roads, and uh, educators in California. And so we're taught, my family taught us as young people at an early age to be involved, to be engaged, to be leaders, and to how to plan. Well, you exemplified that <laughs> in, in, all, in all your endeavors that you have done. But to say that now you went through this these highs and lows, ups and downs through high school, with with a group of people who did decided they didn't want you to participate or be a part of whatever you did. Mm -hmm. Now, but you left there and you went to LSU. Why not Southern Grambling? Well, um, believe me, I wanted to go to California and never come back. But sometimes personal circumstances within your family make you make decisions where you might want to be close to home. And um, due to some personal circumstances, I decided that I wanted to be closer to home for a couple of semesters, and I enrolled in LSU. And... Um, I absolutely hated it, but it was because I hated I hated everything about the rural South. I hated everything about, I must say, I hated everything about Ascension Parish. I hated everything about Gonzales, from the mosquitoes to the plantations. I hated it all. And you know, that's the best way I can describe it, from the mosquitoes in the summertime. But, but to, 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 to clarify, you don't hate it to this day, and things have gotten better, right? Uh, well, you know, you become more more mature, um, I still hate the mosquitoes. I still hate, pretty much hate the plantations. Oh, hate But I've learned how to, um, to take my frustration, and I'm, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna honestly say, you're a friend. I'm doing this interview with you honestly. I must say that yes, there is still a certain amount of anger in me about. Uh, the injustice and inequality in dispersion of funding that comes to institutions and organizations like mine. I'm still frustrated and angry about 
the way plantations interpret our story and our contributions and our suffering. Same people who didn't want you to be on the homecoming court or be a cheerleader, they're still in charge. Huh? Yes, and I mean, I won't say, I, I won't say they um, to generalize, because I don't like to generalize by, by calling any one group of people they. I wanted to see the tourism industry change so that the story of our people, the stories of our people could be told. And the greatness of our people could be told to the hundreds of thousands of tourists who come to Louisiana. And what I realized is, is that it wasn't for somebody else to tell that story. It was for me to find a way to tell that story. And I can remember um, going to the Lieutenant Governor's office for the first time in about, it must have been 1990, the museum opened in 1994. It was within that first year, either before or after the museum opened, and Jerry Hobdy was there. She worked for the Lieutenant Governor's office. And in Jerry's office, she had an African proverb on the wall uh, over her shoulder and it said, until the lion writes his own story, the tale of the hunt will only glorify the hunter. So here I was talking to Jerry Hobdy, an African-American woman in one of the highest positions in tourism and expressing my concern about the lack of interpretation about slavery on these sugarcane plantations that the state was spending millions of dollars to promote. And Jerry said to me, well, what is it that you want to do about it, Kathy? And I said, I'm going to start a museum. And when I said those words, as I was speaking those words, I realized, I don't know anything about starting a museum. I don't know anything about starting a museum. I don't know anything about, I don't know anything about museology. I didn't even know there was a word museology. And uh, I think Jerry, as, as, as the, I'm still told today, from the Lieutenant Governor's office today, we don't have any money for you other than to make some nice pretty brochures. So we can get money to promote to promote what you're doing. a museum and, and, put, but, and put their name on it. Yeah. But we can't give you any money to, to hire your professional staff or to make sure that your buildings are not leaking and that your grass is cut. But we can help you promote promote it. So I must say after 28 years, um, I must proudly say after 28 years, we have sustained a nonprofit institution in the state of Louisiana that I started without any public funding. And, um, and you held your own. But we got to give some credit to the then state representative, our friend and colleague, Brother Roy Kazaya, who did find some money. Yes. To, to make sure that this. It wasn't, it wasn't a whole lot of money, but he did what he could do. Oh, yes. So I mean, we, it, so we, it, we appreciate Roy Kazell, oh, oh, yes. a good friend and a brother, for finding a few dollars and fighting yes. for the museum to have it. 
Yes. So you know there was some money. It took it took a long. It took a lot of fighting. So, but we did. The museum did receive some 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 sort of funding. Yes, and I must say that you know Roy fought for us to the to the degree that we we received a hundred thousand dollars. You know for several hundred thousand dollars for several oh, years. I, didn't, I forgot about that, brother Roy. So I think you know of the twenty eight years we had four years <laughs> that we had at least $100,000 that was general operating money so that we could have, uh, so that we could write those grants for matching money to hire a museum educator, a curator, uh, to pay my salary as the executive director. Thank you, um, Roy, today as a friend of, a, of the museum. He comes to just about every one of our programs here in Donisonville. Um, but we were also the first museum first museum to tell the story of slavery at a plantation because you know the museum when you were on the board of directors the museum started at Tescuco plantation and um, I, I, I jokingly used to say that I'm probably not probably where the what was the only person black person to talk their way back to a plantation I jokingly say that because sometimes I have to laugh to keep from crying. Because if, if what I wanted to change was the way our story was being told at these historic houses, I needed to be at a historic house to observe who was coming. Who are these people that we call tourists? What do they look like? How old are they? Where are they coming from in the world? So for nine years, because I knew Debbie Purifoy, whose family owned Tescuco Plantation right there at the Sunshine Bridge, I convinced her to let me use that one room there and, um, you know, use that one room there. And now here we are in Donisonville 28 years later after the plantation burned down. Hold on now, let me see. Rumor had it that Kathy Hammond burned down the big house. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. You didn't burn out a big house, did you? Well, I want to say this. I want to say this for the record, America. Kathy Hambrick is a builder. She doesn't tear down anything. She doesn't burn anything. She doesn't tear down anything. I'm a builder and I am a preservationist. Oh, one of the best, too. One of the best. That was a joke. I know, I know, I know you're joking, but some people will take that serious. Again, I've had so many experiences in my life doing this work. Uh, I got the call in the middle of the night <laughs> saying that the plantation was on fire. Now, you have to remember that I've seen three plantations burn to the ground since I've been doing this work. So uh, Lafitte's Landing burned, which was John Fosse's restaurant right at the Sunshine Bridge. It burned. Uh, Laura Plantation burned to the ground. They've rebuilt their whole uh, uh, plantation since then. Uh, and then Tescuco burned. So, you know, I started to wonder to myself, I was like, these plantations have been here for hundreds of years, hundred, over a hundred years. And how is it in a matter of five years, three of them have burned down? I just say that it was the ancestors just saying something to me. On that morning, that on the morning after Tescuco, uh, the house caught on fire. My biggest concern was about the artifacts and the art that was a part of the African American Museum's collection, 
fortunately that was in one of the other buildings. So my statement to the media was, unfortunately the big house burned down, but fortunately the African American Museum collection was spared by the fire. You came, my brother Harold was here, a couple of other board members came. My mother was still living that, that time because this happened on Mother's Day of 2002. And we sat there on that lawn while the house was smoldering and I went there every day for a week later and there was steam coming from the ground. So that sound, we saw the smoldering ash, but that sound that we heard, it was like a hissing sound, yeah. almost like a teapot. Right. Like a, it was like a, a teapot that, that and we were sitting there and the ground was emitting steam because the oak, the tops of the oak trees had caught a fire. So it's the trees. The roots the of tree. the trees were trying to get the moisture from the earth to save the tree. So what we heard was the moisture from the ground that the roots were trying to save the tree. And that was the steam, the sound of the steam that was coming out of the earth when that we listened to. I talked to Arby. Not only am I a preservationist, but I know archaeologists, I know arborists. I talked to the tree specialists who were coming out there to save the trees. Oh, okay. And I said, what is that sound? What is that sound? And they didn't even recognize the sound because, see, they are there to do their science of how to save the tree, how to save the tree. So I'm listening and learning and taking notes about everything they're saying. These trees are 300-year-old oak trees, uh, live oak trees, you know. And, um, and so I asked one of them, I said, what is that sound? And they said, well, Kathy, what sound? And I said, be quiet, listen. And so they could hear that. And they said, oh, and they explained it to me. They said, you see where all the tops of these trees have burned? The tree is hot at the top and the earth is cool. And that heat and that coolness is creating steam. The trees got to survive. And guess what? Those trees, if you go to Tescuco today, the big house is gone, but the trees have survived. Okay, then. okay, wow. Well. I passed that way every night. I don't think to look at the trees. But I remember you told, me, you told me that story as we talk it now. I remember that. It was interesting to, to watch the big house. By the time we got there, it was already just smoking and making this cracking sound, that hissing sound. Oh, yeah. all kinds of sounds. All kinds of sounds, yes. Do we have, you have a picture of it? I don't have a picture of it. I think uh, we took some pictures back then. I don't have pictures of the day. You know, probably in the, you know, this was back before we had digital cameras. No, but I have, my, I had pictures. My brother Harold, there's probably rolls of film somewhere that have pictures that my brother Harold took that day. Um, a lot of times I don't take pictures. You take pictures of everything. A lot of times I don't take pictures because I'm so busy wanting my mind's eye, as they say, to learn from what I see through the lens of my own eyes. And sometimes, even when I go to concerts, like I, I went to Johnny Mathis' concert a couple of weeks ago, and somebody say, oh, you didn't take pictures, you didn't take pictures. I said, no, because if I, I would be looking at him through another lens, instead of having 
that interaction of, of one of America's greatest soul musicians and singers. Well, you're glad to know Johnny Mathis is still alive. Johnny Mathis is still alive. Well, how was the concert? <laughs> the concert was fabulous, and he's 80, 86 years old. So sometimes in, in looking at this history, I don't always take pictures, especially not the first time as I'm engaging because I'm trying to um, understand what I'm seeing and take notes in the old-fashioned way. And then I'll try to get back and take take pictures at another time. That, that's that's the afterthought. And sometimes you miss out. Yes, and, and and of course I like to acknowledge I was a board member because of Dr. Tom Durant, uh, who encouraged me to come on board in the late nineties, I think ninety six, ninety seven, and I thank Dr. Durant for uh, encouraging me because it was one of, it was one of the most joyous time and enlightening time for me. Because I didn't know much about preservation, uh, and, you know, what we, what we call it, preserving our history, our way of life. And because of that, it's one of the reasons why what I do with Countdown is help to preserve our history. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, to have the, particularly when the people are still here to tell their story. Absolutely. So that's the most powerful thing there is. And so because of you, you encouraged me being exposed to the museum and all that's going on, you've taken me places, allow me to learn, to grow, and to be a part of this. And I, I'm, I'm so appreciative and thankful for you, but moving on right along. Uh, so that's, for because of the museum, not the museum, of Tescuco Plantation, the big house is what burned down. Mm -hmm. And not long after, you had to make some decisions. Well, you know, I also, people may think that I make all the decisions for the museum, but... You don't? No, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> I, um, I, coming from IBM, you know, when I graduated from college, my, my undergraduate degree is from California State University, Long Beach. And I have a minor in African American Studies, and my major was English, but my major was Technical Writing. And so somebody says, well, what is technical writing? Well, you have to remember at the, in the early 80s, the word telecommunications did not even exist to the public. Telecommunications is a term that was introduced to the public around 1984, you know. Um, and there were companies like IBM and Xerox and uh, Siemens and Rome, who were becoming involved in this technology. Uh, if, if For those of you who can remember when there was something called phone mail, remember we used to have answering machines. Right. And then remember answering machines went away. Right. And then you had something, phone mail, it wasn't a machine, it was like some lady somewhere else that you dialed into oh, right, right. Okay, and then you put that. in the codes. Yeah to transfer your call and make conference calls. Well, that's when telecommunications first became a big thing. So my degree in technical writing, when I went to work for IBM, I wrote technical manuals for the telecommunication systems like phone mail. And um, that was not literary writing. It was not journalistic writing. It was how do you take this technical information and make it simple instructions for people to be able to create uh, conference calls 
and to be able to direct calls to other places within a law firm or a hospital or a courthouse. That was before email. That oh, <laughs> emails. I mean, we didn't get the internet until oh gosh, what 1990s? Oh, long before internet. Long before the internet and emails, we had the internet before we had emails. Okay. We had phone mail before we had internet. So if you look at the evolution of, tele, of the telecommunications industry, I was in the forefront because I worked for IBM for 12 years at the beginning of the telecommunications era. So now they call that a gravy job. So you had a big time job at IBM in the early, early 80s, 80s late early, 80s. early yeah, early, early 80s. And doing technical writing. Yes. So you was living in California. You living? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was living in Long. I lived in Long Beach, a block from the beach. So you can walk to the beach. So oh yeah. Now once again, now how do you end up back in Louisiana? Um, as as Apple, Apple computers, Apple the app company Apple, um, made their big announcement uh, about. Um, Apple technology, the PC mainframe, big frame computer companies of which IBM was number one in the world, um, was in a frenzy. Uh, their stock started to decline. There were 34,000 people laid off worldwide the year I decided to leave IBM. And I wasn't gonna wait to be downsized. I could see the handwriting on the wall and I decided um, to bring my daughter back to Louisiana so that she could know her New Orleans and Louisiana family oh, oh, and her oh, grandparents. Oh, oh yeah, you sound like New Orleans is outside of Louisiana. You said New Orleans. Well, hey. New Orleans is kind of outside of the rest of the world. <laughs> New Orleans is a part of Louisiana. So you brought her back to Louisiana or you brought her back to New Orleans? Which one? I brought her back to Louisiana, but most of my relatives at the time that we moved back, the majority of my relatives lived in New Orleans. My aunts and my uncles and my cousins that I was closest to, the majority of them lived in New Orleans. So you sound like the people who said, uh, I went to Egypt, then I went to Africa. <laughs> so Egypt was in Africa. So it's all the same, right? Yeah, but you know, <laughs> Egypt is a special place in Africa. New Orleans is a special place. In Louisiana. And Egypt is a special place in the world, yeah. as New Orleans is a special place really in, is, the, really in, in the world, especially when we start talking about culture. And I wanted my daughter to know. And you know, when I say I wanted to bring my daughter back to know Louisiana culture, that's not what I meant. I wanted to bring my daughter back to learn New Orleans culture because right. that's where I was born. Oh, it's and where one of kind. Yes. yes, yes. Now, you, you leave in California, the, the sunny state. Oh, yeah. Louisiana's sunny state, too. Oh. Just at the beaches, ain't all this stuff going on. So you come to, you come to Louisiana. Yeah. Now, what you do, what happens in Louisiana when you get here? Culture now, shock. Okay. Your culture shock. You know you what you just left. You've been gone for a little while, but you know. So what? What happens? Um, you know, I I just told you I came back to Louisiana so that my daughter could learn her culture, okay. know her grandparents better, learn how to make gumbo from her aunts and uncles, and 
you know, and not just learn how to make gumbo from me. Uh, What's your daughter's name? You my daughter is Lauren, Brianna. And so, um, who was three years old at that time, and I wanted her to know her grandparents. You know, we get these big corporate jobs, we move off, we, we, we are, we are the first generation, we're in that first generation to reap the benefits after civil rights movement. We are that first generation to have reaped the benefits of affirmative action. Uh, those of us who are in our 60s and our 70s, we were in that first generation to get those corporate jobs, to graduate from the PWI, predominantly white institutions. That's PWI. We were, that's what Dr. Durant calls them in his book, right? PWI, predominantly white institutions. We, those of us who are in our 60s and our 70s, we're in that first generation to reap the benefits of the civil rights movement and affirmative action. And when I came back here after living in California and, ex and experiencing all of those opportunities working for IBM, uh, flying all over the country, flying all over the world, having corporate limousines pick me up from the airport. Oh, uh, it was like you said, it was what you called back then a gravy job. And then to come back to Louisiana, it seemed as if Louisiana, I think I have it just about down pat. It may have changed by now. It's like eight years behind the rest of the, the rest of the country. The, the, the country. It just seems like there was, even in learning dances and music, it was like eight years behind catching up culturally um, to the advancements in, 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 in the rest of the world and ideology, it's even farther behind. I have had a difficult time making that adjustment because um, working for IBM, a Fortune 500 company, having a college degree teaches you about processes, and procedures. You learn how to get along with people of diverse religious backgrounds, of diverse ethnic backgrounds, and then you come back to a place where everything is once again black and white. I knew nothing about the nonprofit sector, so I had to teach myself about nonprofit businesses as opposed to for-profit businesses coming from a Fortune 500 company and coming from a family of entrepreneurs. I come from a family of entrepreneurs, aunts who own grocery stores, uncles who own, uncle, who owned a gas station in New Roads. Your dad, you was on, My you dad know, was in, uh, on funeral home, uh, generations of family members who owned uh, funeral in the funeral home business. My brother Harold for 17 years was the president and CEO of the Los Angeles Black Business Expo. One of the first of its kind. One of the first of its kind. And now I'm in this nonprofit arena trying to understand how do you write a grant and how do you position yourself to ask someone to give you thousands if not hundreds of thousand dollars of money. Yeah, so, so, you know, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, and, you know, two aunts that own grocery stores, uh, aunts that were beauticians. My father comes from generations of funeral home 
uh, owners, insurance men, uh, brother who uh, operated the Black Business Expo. How how long after you arrived back to Louisiana did you decide, I'm going to start this museum? I came back in 91 when my father was ill. So I came not only for my daughter to learn about her culture. My father was ill with cancer. So I was being downsized from IBM. We come back in 91. I'm helping at the funeral home and I'm reading obituaries at the funeral home. And every now and then there would be an obituary that would reference someone who was raised on a plantation. Oh, Stella Hebert born on the Belle Helene plantation. I'm going, well, how could somebody be born on a plantation ju- just dying, you know? I had a new interest in, in, in plantations. Going on the funerals, uh, helping my brother, Daryl, once he came back, when my father passed in 91, going to these old churches and seeing these cemeteries and then looking at how close they were to the plantations and then realizing the chemical plants the churches, the black community were all neighboring each other. And a light went off in my head and said, my goodness, there's so much history tied to these churches, these cemeteries and these plantations and these people. And I got the bright idea after visiting Jerry Hobdy. And I said, okay, I'm gonna open a museum. 28 years later, the museum is still open. 28 years later, my daughter has graduated from LSU, um, has a wonderful career. Um, I have a master's in museum studies. I mentor. From Southern University. From Southern. Southern. My master's university, I mean, my master's degree is in museum studies from Southern University in New Orleans. Uh, I've been an adjunct professor in that program of museum studies, teaching the introduction to museology. Um, I've uh, had more than a dozen students who have interned at the River Road African American Museum, and we've seen tens of thousands of people from all over the world who have visited the museum in 28 years. Uh, so, but you, you moved, let's count it, you moved from, from the Tuscaloosa Plantation, that's when I was on board. Mm-hmm. You end up moving the museum to Donaldsonville, Louisiana, under, who's the mayor then, Capello? Uh, yeah, Harold Capello was the mayor who invited us to come to Donaldsonville. He invited us to come to Donaldsonville. Come see the, uh, the opportunities that, 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 were, that were here in yes. Donaldsonville. And right now we at uh, one of the buildings that you acquired uh, for the doctor, the first black doctor, you know, like say of uh, of this of one of the one of the first of the River Road area. But he he was from Plaquemine originally. Huh? Yeah. So you know, I always thought that Doctor Lowry or Lori Lowry L O W E R Y. I always thought he was the first black doctor in Donaldsonville, but he wasn't. <laughs> and you know, Dr. Dr. Laurie was born in 1860, okay? So he was born during the time of slavery. He was born in Plaquemine, in an Iperville Parish. His mother had been brought here from Madagascar, from Madagascar. Africa. There's a picture of his mother and his uh, father here also in this office. We are in Dr. Lowry's medical office, okay? 
Um, you own Dr. Lowry's house, which was built when? 1932 or 1932, 1933. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Lowry wasn't the first black doctor, born in 1860. But look at this. Look what this says. Dr. Geo Rice Crawford. George. That's George. Rice Crawford. I didn't put that there. Colored. Okay. <laughs> physician. Colored this is physician. his office on Elizabeth mm -hmm. Street near St. Patrick Street. And this is Donisonville, Louisiana. So here it is in the Donisonville newspaper, a chief. copy, 1874, a black doctor, colored doctor, advertising in the newspaper here in Donisonville in 1874. So Dr. Lawrence was only 14 years old at that time. Exactly. So I have, I have, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, people say, well, why is she always asking for money for that museum? And, you know, they, if they had $100,000, you know, that's a lot of money. This museum actually needs, we need $250,000 a year to operate this museum. Operate. When, you know, you have to have a staff of, you, you, you need to have a janitor, you need to have a full-time curator with benefits, a full-time executive director, like a secretary, museums, like other museums. Yeah, you're not a museum unless you have a full-time curator. But, you know... Interns, and I've had interns over the years, I've had an intern who helped me design this whole exhibit, but this is a project for a student. Who was George Rice Crawford? Where did he get his medical degree? Dr. Laurie got his medical degree from New Orleans University, which was the medical college equivalent to Meharry Medical School in Tennessee. It was a part of Dillard University. So we all know about Strait University. A lot of us know about Strait University. But Strait University that became Dillard was the business school aspect of higher education. The black medical school was called New Orleans University, not UNO. Don't get it confused. Not a part of LSU, a part of Dillard University. And we have a copy of Dr. Laurie's medical degree over there. And I think you read it a few minutes ago. And he got his medical degree in what, 1894? 1894. He received his medical degree in 1894. He was 34 years old when he got his medical degree. And we are sitting in Dr. Laurie's medical office on the bench that was in his office. And throughout this building, when you come on a tour, you will be, see, be able to see some of the medical bottles, books, his old telephone, his medical cabinet. Uh, thanks, thanks to you, we've, we've acquired uh, some of his medical um, implements and office equipment and furniture. Thanks to you and Dr. Lori's daughter, Mary. So, um, but, uh, but Capella, because of Mayor Capella, mm -hmm. that invited the, the museum to come and give Donaldsonville an opportunity to relocate in Donaldsonville. Yes. Uh, he's, he's no longer with us, but we, because of, of, of Mayor Capella, we, we came here. We had a we new saw, home here, and, yes. And, and this is how you come to know more about Dr. Laurie and all the other greatness in this community. Because Donaldsonville and the surrounding areas, so many great people mm -hmm. came mm -hmm. from this area, mm -hmm. uh, from mm -hmm. the politicians, musicians, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it goes on and on and on, to be honest. 
Yeah, Mayor Capello asked us to come here because um, revitalization of rural towns was big in the tourism industry nationwide. And Mayor Capello was very, very engaged in um, following the trends uh, of tourism and revitalization for rural cities. And keeping the city moving forward. Keeping the forward. city moving forward. So knowing that Donisonville was a town that's 75% African-American, it always has been a town, predominantly African-American town on the west bank of Ascension Parish. Um, I don't think any of us really realize how much history, how much Louisiana history, how much American history that involved black people um, was tied to this town and, and to the River Road. So, yes, we're located in Donisonville. Yes, we're located in Ascension Parish. But the museum is called the River Road African-American Museum. And this doctor's exhibit exemplifies that. Don't get it twisted with the new River Road African, the new River Road Museum named by who? Well, there's, there's someone who called their new museum at the Homeless House Plantation the River Road Museum. Uh, don't get it twisted. We are the original. Right. We are the original River Road Museum, River Road African American Museum. I once had somebody ask me, and they weren't, they were not of my same ethnic persuasion, but they asked me, well, why do you have to call it African American? Why you just didn't call it, you know, I said, call it what? What, you know, I was waiting for her. I said, well, what, do you, what, what should I have called it? I said, it's very interesting how I've been asked this question. And this was in the early years of, of when I was getting our printed material out. I would be asked that question and challenge. Why do you want to call it African American Museum? I said, nobody questions someone when they decide to call it a Cajun museum. Or when they decide to call it the Museum of Acadiana. Or if, the, if it's the Italian Heritage Museum, or if it's the Jewish Heritage Experience, I don't think anybody else, I don't know, but I don't think anybody else gets questioned about why they want to call or name their institution in a certain way. And um, I used to be offended by those types of questions, but I kind of just smile right now because this museum is not about race. This museum is about culture. And it's about the culture of the black people who descended from the people who worked. Who got more culture <laughs> than those people? Matter of fact, just the other day, I was, I didn't go to the St. Patrick's Parade, mm -hmm. but I happened to be, get caught up in the traffic as the parade had ended, mm -hmm. and you got 10 floats, the police stopped the traffic. Mm -hmm. And all these, these 10 floats, coming by, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and what was interesting is St. Patrick's Day. Mm -hmm. You're celebrating the, the luck of the Irish. Mm -hmm. and so, uh, yeah. so you're, just, you're celebrating the Irish culture, the Irish heritage. But with all 10 of these floats that passed by me, they always playing the music of the African people. Which <laughs> they call a lot of rap music. They were playing rap music I, on the all ten floats. All ten floats. Matter of fact, when I heard who's in the parade, Southern University, Texas Southern, McKinley, Bel Air, mm -hmm. I didn't hear. 
Oh, so they had the, the, the they had the H, they had the HBCU bands and the black school bands. And they had Nelly on the floor. Won't you? Where, where's the culture? I mean, so where the culture come from? Well, I you know what I want to say is that we've gotten it twisted. Sometimes we talk so much about race, and and when we get into the discussions about race. We then it then leads to a lot of discussion that divides us in Louisiana, particularly South Louisiana, and mostly because of New Orleans and the way the culture is so intermingled between the African, the French, the Spanish, the Native Americans, the Irish, the Italians. And even here in Donisonville, we have the same mixture of culture that if we would have more discussions about what we have in common as a culture of people, what, what is our shared culture? Everybody loves our music. Everybody, you know, th there are more people than you would realize who love our literature. We already know they love our athletes, okay? <laughs> we already know that. I don't even need to say that. But, you know, but what I say is that we need to, as a people, need to learn our intellect as much as we learn, love our entertainment. And we need to be respected more for our intellect and our scholarly contributions to the sciences, medicine, agriculture, and all of the, the elements of our culture economically, socially, and culturally, which is what this museum represents. This is not a slavery museum. No, this is, this is up from slavery, huh? This is a up from slavery museum. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, this is a, a, a into the future museum. This is you know. where, when our people, when they brought Matter of fact, I've always been one of the ones believe that a lot of our people is already here mm -hmm, in mm -hmm, this land. Mm -hmm, I've always mm -hmm. believed that. Yes. But the ones they did bring here, they was not slaves. No. They were leaders. They were warriors. Mm -hmm. They was princes. They were kings. They were queens. They enslaved those people. Right. So the word is enslaved the people. Right? The, the word is enslaved. They didn't bring slaves no, here. Bring we no weren't slaves. born slaves. We were born human beings. Yes. You were born a child, a human being. You entered into a condition of enslavement. And so that's why when you look at the literature here and the way we do our tour here, we're talking about people who became enslaved in a condition of enslavement. And the people in this community, in the rural, uh, River Road community, I mean, name some of the musicians that started out, that came from these little towns like Donaldsonville and surrounding areas. Oh, I mean, you know, um, I mean, Fats Domino came from a community that's known as Back Vashery. You know, uh, 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 Dave Bartholomew, who was his band leader, uh, also came from the community near Vashery called Edgard. Uh, you have um, uh, Plas Johnson, who is most famous for the Pink Panther song that everybody knows from all over the world. When I say Pink Panther song to people who come here, they, they can hardly speak English, but they can hum the Pink Panther song. Um, Plas Johnson is uh, from here. Uh, even um, Wynton Marcellus, the Marcellus family, they have an uncle who was from St. James Parish who ended up playing with Duke Ellington. 
There, uh, the guy that taught uh, Louis Armstrong, what was his name? Oh, Joe King Oliver. Joe King, Joe Oliver. King Oliver from right here on the River Road in a little community called Aben. So, Aben is what? Five minutes from Donna's I think it's three minutes. Three minutes it's three Donna's minutes from Donna's on, on, on the River Road. You have my recent interview uh, just in the last few weeks with Louisiana Supreme Court Chief Justice Burnett Joshua Johnson, who is from Lemonville, which is Donisonville. So I just did an interview with her that's on our YouTube channel tomorrow. The first black female Supreme Court justice in Louisiana. Well, she's the first, first, first justice period of her race, huh? Well, uh, no, no, no. Judge Ortiz oh, was, Ortiz. was yeah. Judge Ortiz was uh, on the Louisiana Supreme Court. And then we had, um, oh gosh, I forgot her name. There was another female Supreme Court justice here in Louisiana. She is the first black female Supreme Court Justice here in the state of Louisiana, which is really, really, the interview that I did with her is on our YouTube channel tomorrow. What YouTube channel is? Oh, yeah, I have to give it to you to post. I can't remember all those hashtags and all of that. But um, but it, it, it's very apropos considering that right now here in America, <laughs> after all of these centuries, we're getting our first black female Supreme Court justice and, in the United States. And, and they dug into her, like with things that asked questions that didn't make any sense. They really didn't ask questions, they were telling her really. So you watch that, watch the whole thing on TV. But yes. let's go, so, but yes. people like Joe King Oliver, but you were talking about the, the innovation too of, of the people of this parish and the greatness. We had a young man who created a, a sugar can plant. Oh, yes, Mr. Leonard Julian, who invented the sugarcane planting machine in the museum, ended up with both of his inventions. Uh, I was told by the Smithsonian that these are two of the largest black inventions left in the entire country. It's, a tra it's, tra it's two tractors, uh, you know, it's two tractors. And, and, you, and, you, own, and you, own, you, gave, you gave one away. Well, <laughs> well you know, people say you own it. Kathy doesn't own any the of this. The museum owns it. And the museum, the, when we say the museum owns these buildings or the museum, we don't own history. The history belongs to the people. Oh. I, I'm just the curator who puts it, the story together to give back to the people like in a way world. that they can understand. What's the difference between a public historian and a regular historian? A public historian puts the information into a storyline so anybody, no matter what their age, no matter what their ethnicity, can read the language plain and simple to the public. Historians write books. They write 300-page books. And they put bibliographies and they put all of this, well, you know, if yeah, well, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we need historians. Yeah, yeah. But there is a difference between a public historian if you want somebody to come in a building and be able to understand the story of rural black doctors, I can't put 300 pages and I don't have time to write three, 300 books about 300 subject matters that's in the museum. My team of curators and interns and the board members who support the work that I do help me to be, uh, help me to be the preservationist and public historian who works with other curators and historians 
to tell this story of American history. This is American history. This is American history. That they don't want to tell. This is American history. Who cares? So, I don't care. You know, they yeah, they do want to tell it. The plantations are telling it now. But you know, at one time, <laughs> and it show you how we how we process information. I remember years ago when uh, Dr. Rant and I, and I believe you was part of that too. He, he, he wanted us to go visit the plantation in St. Francisville, wasn't there? Mount something. Rose down. Rose down. Rose down. Yes. So we went over there with with, with Doc. And it was one of the first times I had a tour of a plantation. I never was interested in going on a plantation. Right. It was one of the, I remember we went to another one. On we went to Evergreen. Evergreen. Yes. But this one here, I was with Doc. So as we was touring, the people was talking about, you know, they was giving the story as about the enslaved people like they enjoyed being there, right? It kind of was interesting. I, yeah, to yeah. Listen to their, their mm -hmm. perspective of it. Mm -hmm. Like they enjoyed slaving for the, for the people cooking and I would listen to the story and something. Now this is interesting. It makes it seem like our ancestors really enjoyed being here. They was they, they was as if we being, enjoyed being enslaved. Like we enjoyed being enslaved. So as I listened to that, then we went to the second floor. But something happened to me. <clears throat> we went to the second floor. He started talking about the different rooms, the bedrooms, and then he said, "This is the master's bedroom." Mm -hmm. And that's the first time it ever dawned on me. <laughs> We always say, I want the master bedroom. Mm -hmm. I thought it was just the biggest room in the house. Right. But this, it really is the master's bedroom. Which was the, <laughs> the biggest the, bedroom in the house sometimes. Yeah. But he was the master overseer of the plantation. Mm -hmm. And I never looked at it from that perspective. So it was like, it was an eye awakening like, hold on now. When I say I want, I want the master's bedroom, I'm talking about. So you don't want a master's bedroom anymore in your no, house? No, I, I just want the big bedroom. <laughs> you just want the biggest bedroom <laughs> in the house. Oh, I have to call it the master's bedroom. Yes. But yes. it just shows you how you get caught up and trapped in just sayings that you never thought much of. Well, you know, sometimes I wonder, you, you just used a term, caught up and trapped. And you asked me, how did it feel to come back here to Louisiana from California? And I felt caught up and trapped. Mm. Because everywhere I turned, there was the name of a street and a, and a subdivision. I think even at LSU, the, the Union Cafeteria was called, what, the Plantation Inn or something? The, the Plantation Room or something like that? You know, when I came back here in 91, the cafeteria in the union at LSU was still referred to as the plantation room. 1991, um, as I watched subdivisions and streets and new sub brand new subdivisions being built, nobody else knows that Conway was a plantation. Nobody else knows that John Burnside, that Burnside Highway 44 is named after, was named after John Burnside, one of the largest slaveholders, uh, 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 holders of enslaved people in the, in the country. You know, nobody knows that. So I, it, it's like the more knowledge that I gained, mm. the more trapped I started to feel. But you're only trapped in your mind. You know how they say, free your mind, free your mind. Because even as I watched as the names of the schools in New Orleans, you know, we've been a part of that era, watching my friends and my colleagues who wanted to change the names of the schools in New Orleans um, 
from the names of, uh, of, of the slaveholders. Do you know in America, we'd have to change almost every street name and every town name? Do you realize that? You would have to change every street, every town. <laughs> I remember a couple of years or so ago, way before, they, way before then, when people first started talking about, you know, when stuff was named like Robert E. Lee. Yeah, or, yeah. Jackson or right. whatever. McDonough, yeah, McDonough. After, after these slaveholders or yeah. these different uh, ins, uh, people who <laughs> helped to enslave or the civil, the civil, what do you call civil? The, the civil, civil war, war, yeah. But the Confederates. Yes, yes, yes. The Confederate generals, we know, and we know it's interesting how the Confederate built themselves up because they lost. You know, they, but they put themselves up on these statues like they've done something great. Well, so why? <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but people was talking about removing the statues mm -hmm. way at one time years ago. But you had a different perspective of that back then. What was yours? Well, my perspective was, remember, I, I said at the beginning of this interview, interview, let it be known that Kathy Hambrick tears down nothing. I'm a builder. So rather than argue with somebody about tearing, tearing their monument down, now I am, a, I, am, I am advocating that if it's my public dollars or on public land, it needs to be removed. But I am one who is a builder. It's like, well, where's my monument? And I'm asking our people, where's our monument? This museum is a monument and a testament to all that was good in our survival after enslavement. The man who was born in slavery became a doctor. The man who was born in slavery who became a doctor, the men who were born in slavery who became the world's greatest musicians, men who are two generations out of slavery who invented uh, mach machines and the science to revolutionize medicine and agriculture. This museum in itself is a monument. And what breaks my heart more than anything is the difficulty we have in getting our community to support it. Mm. So we got a responsibility. If you talk, if you, well, how, did, how did that saying go? You talk to talk. Walk the walk. You got to walk the walk. We have to support our HBCUs. You're, we're all excited about all the money that's supposed to be given by somebody else to the HBCUs, and we're not supporting the HBCUs. I want to hold our people accountable. I really do in this interview, and I mean, I may not make friends, I may make some more enemies, but I want to say, instead of complaining about what other people aren't doing for us, what you gonna do for yourself? we need to be more self-sufficient in the same way that the benevolent societies and these black doctors who found a way to get an education and help others get an education. We need to learn matter, from the past. Matter of fact, now, I'd like to believe I'm one of the ones who talk the talk mm -hmm. and walk the walk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'd like to believe yes. I'm one of them people. Yes. Uh, because I made conscious efforts to support the museum and other entities uh, like this. Absolutely, over yes, the years. yes. But there was a building that that I had purchased and donated to the museum called the what? The True Friends Benevolent Association Hall. So they called themselves True Friends. Yes. To each other. Yes. That's powerful all by itself. 
Benevolent. Benevolent. You think about the word benevolent means to help. So these people decided we can't wait for the slave master to come and true help friends them. helping true, true each friends helping, helping each, each other. other. And that's what they did right here in Donaldsonville. They created a, a, a benevolent society. What what was it about? It was basically benevolent associations were created by those men and women right out of slavery who could not, they were not insured by white insurance companies. Um, they, there were very few black doctors, but you would pay, it was a self-help organization. What they call HMOs today. It was like an HMO. So you would, and, and, I, and I can imagine in your audience, everybody can relate to this in one way or another, if you're from the South particularly. Your mother usually was the person who kept the little book and we have dozens of these books, uh, kept the book, you paid dues to the society or the association, benevolent association. Sometimes it was a quarter a month, might have been 50 cents a month, might have been a dollar a month, depending on where you lived. And the society then, when, you, when someone in the family became ill, your mom would take the book showing that it was paid off, that, you had pay, that she had paid for every member, take the book to the doctor, and the doctor would then treat you. Coming into an office like this, Dr. Lori, True Friends Hall, True Friends Benevolent Association would pay the doctor bill. And there were hundreds of these benevolent societies, well, benevolent associations and, all over the country. we're talking about the late 1800s, we're talking about the slavery. We're talking about the, the early 1900s. The True Friends Benevolent Society Hall was built in, eight. the land was purchased in 1886 by Dr. Lori for $450. You got that too? Yes, it's on the wall over there. Okay. And then um, the building was built by 1887. The building, the two-story building was built. The museum owns the building, thanks to you. You donated the building to the museum. So now the museum belongs to us as a 501c3. So I don't say the, the building doesn't belong to me. The building doesn't really... The, when, the, when we say something belongs to the River Road African American Museum, it belongs to the public. It belongs to you. It belongs to the people. That's what it means when you have a 501c3 organization. I got somebody that took a, drew a picture. So yes, yes. What, what, yes. Is, what you looking at? Oh, that's the True Friends Hall. And look at the horse. There's a horse in front of it. Yeah, there would have been a horse and buggies back then. But a friend of ours, Brother Wang Dang, drew this picture. Oh, wow. And I got to, he showed me this picture the other day. Yes, yes, and, yes, 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 yes. And, and Wang, he did a great job. It's a picture I gave him years ago. Yes, yes, yes. He decided, yes. He decided to go down and, and draw the picture. But even though I got in some legal trouble years ago, and I donated, I did donate the building to you, to the, muse, to the museum, but the, the, the government, after I donated it, the building to you, they still came back and took the building. It took me six years to get the building back. They took the building from you. Yeah, you donated the building. You donated the building to so, the museum. So they still don't want to have nothing. We, I mean, we had all the legal paperwork where you had donated the building to the museum. The museum had owned the building almost 10 years before you got into your trouble. We owned the building. We had been caring for the building, put a new roof on the building and everything. And and they confiscated the building and confiscated the building and it took a trip to Washington DC by board members, other board members went to Washington DC 
and because they had violated HR 106, which says that before you take a building from anyone, particularly the building is in a historic district, a historic registered district, you're supposed to provide, put public notice. You're supposed to advertise it in the paper, let people know. You can't just come take somebody's property, federal government. You can't just take somebody's property without. And, and, and because of my studying preservation and preservation laws, I said, hmm, H.R. 106, hmm. And so it took me six years, basically, to, to get to, the building back. You had to back. go talk to senators, U.S. senators? Yeah, we, we actually, they actually went to, hmm, I'm trying to think of who was there. Bro, they might have went to Cassidy. No, it was Bro or one of those, I can't remember which one. From down in Thibodeau. Yes. Might have been Bro, yeah. But anyway, we got the building back, and right now. But you had to pay for the building. They made us pay they wanted us to pay $13,000 for the building. Give it back to you. To give it back to us <laughs> after it had been donated to us. Yes. Uh, we ended up negotiating it down to $6,000. And we bought the building back from the federal government. Uh, we now own clear, outright title to the building. And we've been ma maintaining the building. We put a new roof on it. The roof was damaged during Hurricane Ida. But... Well, hopefully now the federal government might see it in their heart to donate some money to renovate the building. Uh, again, what I say is I, it's hard for me to fix my mouth to keep asking other people to fix a building that was built based upon self-sufficiency right. of black people build. We built the building in 1886. Hey, we didn't have nothing. Didn't and we can't in, in, in 2021. You know, we're having, a, well, we're actually going to have to raise $285,000 to match if in the legislature, the Louisiana legislature, we have a capital outlay request in for $1.3 million. That's going before the legislature in the next few weeks. And so we have new so, so plans. What we need to do to get people bored then to make sure we get some. So I will be who, talking. Who's pushing this? Is, is Senator Ed Price Ed from Price. Ascension Parish. Okay. And also, Senator—I mean, State Representative Ken Brass, but Senator Ed Price. We need phone calls. We need to. There, there is, from what I understand, a surplus of money in the state of Louisiana. All that COVID money, huh? they call it COVID. I don't know they where the money, money come from, but I—they I keep hearing there's a surplus of money. Yeah, they want to give it to the bridge. They're gonna take it to the bridge. We are the first African American museum in the state of Louisiana. The only other museum that receives funding from the state is the Eddie Robinson Museum at Grambling. We've been around for 28 years showing sustainability in this community, educating hundreds of thousands of people who come to Louisiana. The True Friends Benevolent Association Hall will become a jazz music school for the young people in this community to learn about the music of Plas Johnson, Joe King Oliver, um, Fats Domino, Domino Dave Bartholomew, Leo Nocentelli of the Meters. Uh, we want children to have a place, teenagers and children to have a place where they can learn about the history of our music in America and so that they too can then become the next generation of musicians and entrepreneurs in the music industry. So like, our, like our ancestors would say, man know thyself. And it's time that we awaken 
-hmm. from our stupidness or drunkenness or ignorance and foolishness foolishness and start to find out learn more about self uh, but also, the True Friends Hall served an even greater purpose years ago. Mm -hmm. Remember that, what that story is? Oh, well, not only was it a venue for music. So, you know, like right now, you got to go to Smoothie King and the River Center and all that for a concert. It was a concert hall. So, you know, uh, Joe Tex and Fats Domino and all these musicians that we're talking about, it was a music venue. So they sold tickets there to raise money for the Benevolence Society. Hey. And also, didn't that something about the, uh, the Zulu? Zulu toasted the king and queen of Zulu on the balcony there one year. Uh, one year, one year. I think it was like 1929, uh, the king and queen of Zulu came back up river here and toasted the king and queen of Zulu on the balcony there. Um, and all of that is, 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 is documented in the Donna Seville uh, chief. We have uh, just files and files of old magazine clippings and data um, that we're hoping to get digitized so that the public can know. Kathy Hambrick's not making this up. This was <laughs> this was written in these newspapers that I've been reading, these old newspapers Don I've been did, reading. Donsville Chief did a great job of archiving the history. And included African Americans in a way that's really impressive. Yes. Um, because they didn't, they didn't have to include us other than to refer to us by the N-word and call us coons and all kinds of other derogatory names. But they, they put the advertisement for a black doctor in the paper in 1874. <laughs> what, must, what, what more do I need to say? <laughs> but that is a bit, you know, a lot of people got oh, intertwined here. The Italians. Yeah, yeah. The Italians, the, the Germans, the, the Jewish, the Jews, Jewish people, the, yes. You know, with, with the Jews, Germans, I thought that was the same thing. Uh, what do you call them again? Well, uh, Jew, Jewish, remember, it refers to a religion. Religion. So, I so you know, you don't, you don't refer to Jewish people as a race yeah, of people. Yeah, Jewish refers to people in a religious right, uh, belief system. Yes, Judaism. Yes, yeah, yes. Right but you got other people, you had, you had a lot of other people, like say Italian, mostly Italians in this Oh, area. I mean, you know, we have Italian here, we have Irish, we have Cajuns. And people say, well, what are Cajuns? You know, one of the things that I've looked at, I went to work for the West Baton Rouge Museum for almost five years, and we would often talk about what Cajuns and um, African Americans have in common. And, you know, the Cajun people were exiled and ended up coming to Louisiana on ships in their exile and they settled throughout rural the rural area of Louisiana because the French discriminated against them. The French were the highfalutin bourgeoisie and the Cajuns ended up coming into the rural area and were considered the country people, you know, less educated, less socialized. They were ostracized. Um, Cajun people did not want their, uh, their children uh, to speak French at all. They wanted them to learn the king's English. If, if you look at Cajun history and look at African American history, there's some similarities. Now, I'm not saying one was treated worse than the other. It's not about that. But it's like, what do we have in common as people who are discriminated against? You know, the uh, Italian people, you know, they, who were called Dagos, they were discriminated against in certain parts of America. 
How do we all as a people who became, who were victims of discrimination at one, in one way or another, then align yourself with an oppressor who sees us as either groups of people of color, less than, and then we end up, you know, we end up so divided. I think what one of the things that museums can do, and one of the things that we, we try to do in recent years is to look at the world of people, particularly around Louisiana, from a cultural perspective and not divide us so much by race. Look at the culture of made us, whether you call yourself black, whether you call yourself African-American, whether you call yourself Creole, whether you are part of an indigenous group of people, we should learn to respect each other culturally, respect each other culturally and realize we're all a part of this place that is called America. And I, at one time, my brother Daryl would tell you at one time, and you know this too, hated the American flag. You're getting me to reveal some things about myself that only very few people know. I absolutely hated the American flag being a child of the 70s. I don't want to celebrate the 4th of July. I don't want to see American flag. I don't want to have anything to say about the military. Why do you go fight in these wars and come back to a country who shows us no respect? But in all that I've learned about the sacrifices that our people have made since we have been here, since we have been here, been here from the beginning of the time, before the Europeans even came. Right. If there is anybody who deserves to call themselves Americans, I think we, could, we should proudly say that my uncles and my grandfathers fought for freedom as much as yours, or as much as, if not more, than any other group of people who have ever lived here. So I don't wave the flag but I don't feel as bad as I used to about it. So you have come to a place where... I've reconciled myself to understand <laughs> that there's too much blood that has been shed from my ancestors on this land for, my, for me not to say that I have ownership in it too. And all your hard work you to put into this to see what all your ancestors have, have gone through mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To, to get you where you are now. Our ancestors, where they have gotten us to be where we are today. And I want our young people to stand proudly on that and to represent us as a community proudly. And there, my dad would say, there's a time you can work hard and you can play hard. I think sometimes we play a little bit too much and our young people need to put in a little bit more harder work and just understand that education still is the key to our success. This is key on who you are. And you can't just get it off of Google. Can't just get it from the internet. You can't just pay attention to social media. You have to get education by whatever means necessary. And that means you still have to pick up a book. And you still have to listen to the wisdom of your elders. But that's one of the things that I can that we have allowed to slowly dissipate from our community, where we listen to the elders. Mm -hmm. we have, 
we got pushed them so far back. Mm -hmm. And they're like the boys crying out in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And so we need to maybe figure out what we can do to bridge that gap. Because, I mean, I interviewed uh, your, your friend, Brother Ibrahim uh, Sect. Mm -hmm. And when he talked mm -hmm. about in their culture in Africa, how the elders still had a strong role. You know, even though the, uh, the outsiders or agitators are coming in to change that, but right now the, the elders still has the last say so. Well, you know, Dr. Seck and I are colleagues and friends. And one of the things that we realize in this 21st century is that, too, in Africa, social media is changing young people. So if you even look at, if you look at Netflix today, you look at TV, you follow, if you follow what's going on in Africa, you see that African young people are, be, have become capitalists. They are part of the entertainment world. They're rapping, they're calling each other those derogatory names in the same way. They are thinking that elders are the old people who don't know anything. They are following um, the ways of the 21st century and the foolishness, I call it foolishness, but I also respect our young people who are engaged in knowing about their history. Dr. Seck and I know that as historians and as educators, the only way to keep us rooted is to bring young people into uh, a learning environment where they get to know this history. And museums do that. That's what we do. That's, that's what we do. You complain that the public schools, the public schools aren't teaching your children black history, and you got a black history museum right down the street. Yeah, don't, don't even think to come into it. Right, so, you know, um, so we, we do what we, we do the work that we do through our museums and through our scholarly work to be the voice to be the voice of our elders and to look at what they attained and acquired living during times that were so much harsh, more harsh but even, than what we live it through but now. But even right out of slavery, as I look at some of these articles on the, on the walls in Dr. Laura's office over here, you got the Brazos Drugstore. Who was owned by who? Dr. Brazier's son-in-law owned Brazier's Drugstore. And we're talking, this article that you're looking at now is 1942. 1942. They had, had their own drugstore. On Railroad Avenue, a two-story yeah. built. They had a hotel upstairs and the drugstore downstairs. And his wife was a beautician manufacturing her own hair care products just like Madam C.J. Walker. And then you had... The Lawson Shoe Shop. The Lawson Shoe Shop, which was called sometimes the Shoe Hospital. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, I think in the other room back there, I think I may have uh, Mr. Lawson's suitcase. But yeah, a shoe store. Where do you go for shoe repair now? That was a trade. I mean, you had black people who were skilled in that in that that trade of repairing shoes. We just throw shoes out now, I guess. Oh, yeah, you know. You, they, 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 they figure where we you know they're too old anyway. We don't keep things as long, but it just it's, it's look at that up there. It says what is it? Boutte's nightclub, New Iberia's oldest amusement spot. Oh, 
1942, New Iberia. That's right, my home area, New Iberia, right outside of Franklin. Yeah. I mean, so even when you think about nightclubs and juke joints, juke joints, oh, nightclubs. Don't talk about juke joints. Don't get you talking about juke You love your juke joints. Huh? Well, they were businesses. That was a business. Those were entrepreneurs. Those people who operated those juke joints sent a lot of people to college. <laughs> For those who might not know, remember, what are juke joints? Well, you know, juke joints were those, those places that uh, ended up being called uh, nightclubs where our musicians first played li live music. Uh, usually they were in rural places. Uh, in the middle of cane fields and cotton fields. On, on the on bayou. On, on the bayou, sitting in, 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 in some pretty isolated places where some of the early blues musicians uh, and jazz musicians, mostly blues musicians, started to play as professionals. They would make, make money. Uh, these, these places were owned by black people, sometimes black women, where they sold dinners or suppers. Or, uh, or something else. Uh, or <laughs> there were there was sometimes, as there always may be with associated with nightclubs and barrooms, anywhere there's liquor being sold, there are other uh illicit activities sometimes going on. Sometimes there was gambling. The oldest profession in the world. Well there was gambling going on. Um but I like to look at those juke joint entrepreneurs, the people who own those nightclubs, as people who were some of the first business people in our community. And they sent a lot of nieces and nephews to college. And, and matter of fact, it's interesting. Donald Seville, at one time, for a small community, had the, a level of educated people that rival most towns in Louisiana. Yes, if you look at the exhibit in the other room, when you come to the museum, if you take our bicycle tour, we have a bicycle tour called History on Wheels, or if you drive uh, the city tour that we do and you end up coming here, um, if you look at the list of people, blacks who were in medical school at New Orleans University, it's amazing. How could you, I mean, it's like hundreds of students in nursing school and medical school in 1906 and in you know 1896 in 1894 getting medical degrees but now <laughs> Donaldsonville have a hard time graduating now young people what's going on with that what have happened well i think that's a discussion for later times for you to discuss with educators um we're having some difficult times right now, of course, because of COVID and this whole virtual environment. Um, students are dropping out. Students say, I don't have to show up at a building now because of COVID. I don't have to show up in a classroom where the teacher's going to take role. The teachers are challenged with keeping up with those students who are at home unsupervised. They could turn on a computer. I, I had a teacher tell me, they had a student would turn on his computer, clock into the computer, and then be in Walmart all day. You know, or just roaming the streets and come back and clock in at the end of the day. Our teachers are having a terrible time in trying, to, well, now coming back, getting those students back into the classroom. If you've been out of a classroom for two years, and now you're telling them to show up and pay attention. Um, 
and also I had a friend who just she did her, uh, what you call it, defended her thesis. Mm -hmm. A dissertation. Dissertation mm -hmm. a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Krista, I can't remember Krista last day. Mm -hmm. Krista goes to my brother's church. Mm -hmm. And she wrote the, she had the most, one of the most powerful dissertation I've heard. Mm -hmm. she, she did an awesome job. Was it about education? Education, but she called the educational system a form of human capital. Mm -hmm. that, that you're taking these young people down a road to serve you, mm -hmm. not to serve, not, not their own interests. And young people these days are not, they, they, they're a little more, uh, they're a little more advanced than I guess we were. We kind of follow our parents. Them. We well, look. Yeah. Our parents said we. They said the same thing about us. Right. They you, parents said the same thing but, about but, them. But you, you were, <laughs> you were one of the ones who took a stand for different things. So I can't, I can't put you in that category. Yeah, but my parents didn't agree with the way you remember. I told you, my dad said you take yourself over there to school and keep your mouth shut. You know, so with every generation, young people are, are, are going to rebel in their own way. I, I agree with what she says about the education system only sees us maybe as human capital. But our children need to be smart enough and learn from the rest of us that um, there's, there's, there's something called opportunity. Opportunity, uh, education is the key. You need to learn how to take advantage of it. Take advantage of it. Get what you can get out of getting an education by whatever means necessary. Education is not a just one perspective. So we've got to we have to open that up. We're not just talking about go and get a PhD and all that. We're right, right. Oh, put yourself in a position to learn. A tr what is it, a trade, uh, electrician? Uh, exactly, exactly. So you have to be able to give yourself a value. Give, give yourself a value. Educate yourself enough to be able to survive and move out of your parents' house. <laughs> okay? <laughs> you learn how to be, being self-sufficient means I know how to take care of myself. <laughs> means I know how to take care of myself, you know. And by whatever, if you if you don't want to go get a college education, okay, go learn a skill and a trade. And it, no matter what that skill or trade is, you believe in it, okay. Well, you show me that 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 you've educated yourself enough about it to make it work for yourself, where you can be self sufficient. Now, I'm here as your parent. I'm always here for you. But even with parents, if you don't believe in the public school system and you want to complain about it, guess what? There are people out here homeschooling. I have a cousin who educated, I think, what was it? 11 children in homeschooling, and every last one of them has a college degree. I know a lot of people who are telling me, you know, I was homeschooled. They have a college degree. If you don't believe in the system, there's other options. There's other options. There's other options. If if I had waited for the government to give me a grant to open this museum, you'd still be waiting. I probably would still be waiting. Um I sometimes say if I knew then what I know now, would I have ever started the museum? Probably would not, so thank God you didn't know. Thank, thank God I didn't know. Because if I had known it was going to be this hard, 
I probably would have talked myself out of it and done something easier, like no. go get a job. No, like go get another job no, no, somewhere. Something you want to, you look for the tough opportunity. That's what that means you thrive the most. But also too, I think because I come from a family of entrepreneurs, I knew, I I, I watched people take the risk of being self-sufficient. Um, I started this museum not for myself. I started this museum to be the voice of the people who never had an opportunity to tell their story to the world. And you love telling stories. Let, let me share this story. Uh, one day, uh, Ms. Hambrick called me. She was coming to Baton Rouge, and she asked me to, to meet her. Okay, so I went to meet her. She, went, she brought me to a graveyard. <laughs> cemetery. Oh, cemetery, I'm talking about. I'm sorry, it's a cemetery, it ain't a graveyard. I mean, I come up, we still call them graveyard. <laughs> so the sophisticated name is cemetery. So we went to the cemetery. Where the, what's the name of the cemetery? Oh, gosh, it was in the Old South Baton Rouge. Right, uh, right there where my dear friend was, where Burgess lived. I came up with I remember, the It's right there behind uh, Mac, 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 McKinley. Not yet. Uh, McKinley Middle. Yes, right yes, there yes. Middle. Yes. And so, we went, so I went over there and met to meet her in the graveyard. I don't know what was going on, but she just wanted me to come and she wanted to start walking through the graveyard. I never saw someone get energy from being, being in the graveyard. She started getting excited. I'm thinking, what's going on here? What's, so, what's she so excited about? So she started sharing me the history and she saw some trees. I'm saying, why don't. I said, no, and I saw the trees. And why are them trees growing in front of the, uh, the tomb? And what you told me? They would plant a tree sometimes instead of a cross in, at the head of a tomb to mark where the grave was. So whenever your family or your descendants, you say there's a big oak tree or a sycamore tree or a tree at the head of your grandpa's tomb. And the, and the tree would actually engulf the... Sometimes I have a photo of a headstone that has actually been taken up by the tree. The headstone is four feet embedded into the trunk of the tree, where the tree has just grown so much over the years that it picked up the headstone. But, but that was an African tradition. African yeah. tradition, yes. Planting a tree at the head of a grave, yes. So when you walk in the graveyard and you see a tree in front of the grave, it, don't, it just didn't happen to grow there. It didn't just happen to grow there. And many of the, well now with the modern day cemeteries, they keep them so manicured that, you know, the trees uproot. You, you'll, you'll go into a, to some cemeteries where the roots of the tree have even disturbed the, the casket or the coffin or the vault or whatever. So now we don't like to have trees in our cemeteries. But as being, being a uh, slave cemetery preservationist, I've been in dozens and dozens of slave cemeteries in the middle of the woods. And sometimes you're lucky enough to see this in the urban cemeteries like Baton Rouge, where I can go, oh wow, look at this tree. It was intentionally planted here. And you can see them in a row. Or you can see how yeah, they were a positioned. Family, a group of a family. A group right of there. a family, yes. So, but what caused you to get so much energy in a cemetery? Oh, you know, I say that I'm, uh, my brother Daryl and I say we're the ultimate preservationists. We're in the funeral home business. And if you know what the, the work of the ancient Egyptians, you know, we're in the business of helping people make that transition from this world to the next. We're in the business of helping families through the grief process of understanding 
that their ancestors or their loved ones are going to be taken care of. Well, I, I preserve slave cemeteries. Yeah. That's what I do. Because yeah, you, you truly was excited about being in the grave. And I had an opportunity to go to several other graveyards after that. And it's the same experience with you. That I may get a certain energy from being in places like that, just like you did when you went to the tombs in, in Egypt. That's a big graveyard. Oh yeah, you're right, David. So you yeah, know, do you know that energy you felt? You know that energy you felt. You can't explain it. Yeah, can't, can't, you can't explain it. But no, going no. into that, going into those tombs well, well, and that—that's just something I didn't anticipate. I didn't, I, at that time, I had little animal spider. Okay. I had little knowledge or insight about what I was going to be experiencing. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that caught me mm -hmm. off guard. I was—it mm -hmm. just took me so. But you, like I say, just like with being around the museum. And the museum have gone from after 20 years of evolution from the president. Who's the first president? Uh, Joyce Jackson. Dr. Joyce Jackson. Dr. Joyce Jackson was my first, first president oh, of the board. Good old Doc. Doc, doc she's, <laughs> she's the chair of LSU. And, uh, the Anthropology and Geography and department. department LSU. She's she always been on the front line. And you Dr. Durant was Dr. Dr. Durant served two terms as board president. And, still, with the and still works with the museum. Joyce still is as is an advisor. Our our board presidents become board president emeritus, so they're always uh, respected as um, as supporters and friends of the museum. Um, I. I started this nonprofit without any experience on nonprofit organizations. Zero money. And zero funding. Resource. Resources. And now we have one, two, three, four, five buildings. Five buildings Rosenwald where School. we have the Rosenwald School that I moved across the Mississippi River. Uh, we have the True Friends Hall. Rosenwald School was built in 1930 that we moved across the Mississippi came River to Saint preserve. James Parish, came from St. James Parish. We have the True Friends Benevolent Society Hall that's in its original location since 1890, 1886 that you donated to us. We have Ms. Sylvia Watkins' home, who's a school teacher at a Rosenwald School. Her house on Charles Street is our main office building and a main museum site. We have the little garage that's right next to Miss Sylvia's place in the Jazz Plaza that we use as our uh, little introduction room. And there's a slavery exhibit there. Um, then we have the doctor's office where you are right now. We own this building. We've totally restored it. It's a shotgun, shotgun style building. That was Dr. Lori's medical office. Um, we have the Freedom Garden, which is a community garden that is 12 years old, that um, talks about the Louisiana Underground Railroad. And, and uh, what's the name from Southern University? We helped to put that in place for you. Uh, Dr. Uwusu Vandelli and Mila Baran from Southern University's um, Ag Center, who were consultants with us on the Freedom Garden. Uh, we have, we're about to build a shed for Mr. Julian's sugarcane planting machine with the help of the Ascension Parish Sheriff's Office, Bobby Weber, and the trustees. That, that, that building will be built within the next 30 days. And I was just given the keys a few months ago 
to the Episcopal Church of Ascension, where we will be the only museum in the country that has a permanent exhibit on the enslaved people sold by Georgetown to Louisiana, the Jesuits who sold people, enslaved people, to Henry Johnson, who became the governor of Louisiana. We'll have a permanent exhibit in the church now, now, here. Now, now you say Georgetown. What you mean Georgetown? Georgetown University. The Jesuits, the Jesuit priest who owned Georgetown University in 1838 sold over 272 people to two men in Louisiana, and one of those men resided here in Ascension Parish. What was his name? Henry S. Johnson. Who became the governor of Louisiana. He was a senator, became a governor, was a lawyer, and a judge here in Louisiana. And his church was right down the street where what? he sat and prayed. <laughs> up, up on these slave, enslaved people. While buying yeah, human yeah, beings yeah. that were enslaved on several of his plantations. In Jesus' name. Huh? In Jesus' name. Yeah. Okay. So we have, a, we have that church and building. Thanks to Brother... Daryl Gissel. Thanks to Daryl Gissel who purchased the building. Um, he is allowing us, and thanks to the Social Science Research Council of America, a grant that we received, we um, will be opening that exhibit on the Saturday before Juneteenth this year, June and, 18th. And thank Daryl Gissel who, who really is a former president of the board of the River Road African American Museum. Yes. Uh, uh, the first and only president of European descent. <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, I mean, you know, Daryl Gissel became a member of the board of the museum because uh, of our involvement in preservation. He's a preservationist. He's with the Louisiana uh, Historic Preservation, Preserve Louisiana. He's involved in preser preservation statewide. He became a board member and um, at the time when we were uh, trying to get the Rosenwald School restored and um, his knowledge of preservation um, helped us. As a matter of fact, he's one of the people who went to Washington to get the True Friends back. True oh, Friends all back. But thank you, brother. Darryl, the two Darryls went. <laughs> Darryl Hambrick, my brother Darryl Hambrick and Darryl Gissel went to Washington. So Darryl, we need to go talk to Gissel for him to tell us the other side of that story. Right? <laughs> yes. But um, this is a long journey. Uh, the, a journey. The, the museum is 28 years old this month, March 20, 2022. And, we, and, and also, mm -hmm. good on. And um, my goal is to hire a staff that can help take this museum into the next 28 years. That's what I live for right now, is to hire the next group of young people to step into my shoes and step into my brother Darrell's shoes and become board members. And We're looking for young board members who can carry this museum the, to the and next and level. We thank the, the new board member, of President Todd Sterling, yes. for doing an awesome job as the president. Under his leadership, uh, the museum now have a few dollars in the, a few dollars in the bank. Oh, wow, yes. Thank you to Todd Sterling uh, for being uh, a part of the board now for uh, uh, two terms. Uh, thank you. Th 
thank you to the city of Donisonville. You know, thank you, uh, you know, to the mayor, the city council, um, um, Lee Melanson. I want to thank the city of Donisonville. Thanks to Ed Price and Ken Brass. Uh, we are getting uh, some money appropriated for the museum. Uh, it's not it's not the twenty two hundred fifty thousand dollars I need uh, a year, but it's about half of that. But remember what I said, we can't rely on government to support our institutions. If we're about sustain sustainability and self-help, we need our community to step up and to become permanent, uh, permanent uh, supporters and donors of this museum. Uh, it's hard to ask other people to support an institution that's dedicated to preserving our history. And why is that? You remember what I told you years ago? What? What? It's hard to ask somebody. <laughs> I don't remember specifically. You, remember? you told me you said told me so giving them so many much well, advice over uh, the years. About by preserving uh, telling your history, you want other people to give you money. Oh yes. You 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 said to me, so you want you want other people to give you money so that you can tell them how bad they treated us. And that's going to be tough. And it has been tough, but guess what? No, I, I can say that our supporters, some of our biggest supporters have been people who don't look like me. Some of our biggest supporters have been people who don't look, who are not the same, don't have the same color skin that I have. There are people who understand that justice and oh, doing justice, that justice and doing the right thing has no color. Mm -hmm. And they believe in the work that we do here and they support us and they come. Teachers, educators, who don't look like us. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, no, but I'm, I'll pass on this with you. <laughs> but, we, but we want to thank, uh, so you got a chance to, to share about thing that's going to be taking place at the, at the church? The yeah, church. June 18th, want everybody, and I will forward to you um, the hashtag for Instagram, um, Twitter, Facebook, the museum's website, so you can uh, let everyone know. Our website is www.africanamericanmuseum.org. We were also one of the first museums in the country to have a website. <laughs> So we've had our website since 1997, yeah. and so. Matter of fact, when you type in on a, on Google, African American Museum, your name come up first, right? When you type in African American Museum, uh, yeah, our name does come up first. Um, before, oh, I typed in African American, and River Road African American Museum came up before even the one in, in D.C. Well, yeah, before the National Museum, because we were we've been, I guess, in the uh, in the cloud. And you work with all those people up there, so they you know, they they knew you. What, yeah, what my Lonnie Bunch. I want to say thank you to Lonnie Bunch and John Franklin, the son of John Hope Franklin, uh, who you all may have come to know in recent years as a part of Black Wall Street, who uh, was a child at the time of Black Wall Street. Um, we're all in this business together. I want to say visit an African-American museum wherever you go in the country, whether you're going to a football game, basketball game, whether you're traveling on business. 
African-American museums all around the country, rural places and urban cities, we need your support. Um, so tell them hello from Kathy Hambrick uh, at the River Road African-American Museum and leave a few dollars when you go. <laughs> so what is next for Kathy Elizabeth Hambrick? Uh, to drop that Elizabeth <laughs> off of all future interviews. <laughs> Well, I started my own company called To Preserve. Um, to Preserve. So That's I'm an independent museum consultant, and so um, I'm involved in slave cemetery preservation. Oh, you are. Uh, in a big way in Louisiana. So, so I, I was one of the ones to encourage you to stick with cemeteries. Oh, well, you were the ones, you were one of the ones who saw that, that, that spark of, of light that hit my soul when I was in that graveyard. And uh, I've been in dozens of cemeteries and graveyards. And um, uh, part of my life's work now is to preserve these, uh, these cemeteries that are now on the properties of chemical plants, petrochemical companies all along the River Road. And um, I'm also an independent museum consultant, so I'm working on a project in New Roads. I continue to work on projects in Port Allen, and I'm a consultant to the River Road African American Museum, where my goal is to hire the next generation of board members and employees, curators, museum educators, and the staff to take this museum to the next 28 years. Well, you've spoken it. Yes. So it shall be done. come to pass. Yes, it will. Yes, it is. <laughs> Whatever you speak shall. Yes, yes. So but, uh, and this being uh, still Woman History Month, and I feel honored to be here to sit down and talk with a woman of your caliber, quality, of your, I mean, just everything you encapsulate when it comes to dedication, hard work, believing in self, believing in, in your community, you have stood for, for, for you have you have stood the time, test of time, uh, and you have also stayed focused on what you call that again, the course of bringing your people from out of the darkness into this marvelous light. And being Women History Month, I feel honored to be able to sit here with a dear friend, colleague, and everything else you can imagine, and to to pay, play, to pay homage to you, friend, for your hard work, dedication, and commitment to your community, and to yourself, and to your family. And, and with all other things that you had to go through, and I know, I know the story, I watched it, and it didn't come, it did not come easy. But you're not a quitter. No, I'm not. Oh, I'm not a quitter. I'm not a quitter. I may take a little break, but. Well, you, you, don't, you don't take no break. You don't get nobody oh, else no. a break. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm rejuvenated often, put it that way. Rejuvenated often, yes. Okay. Well, count time, I'd like to thank you for giving us your time mm -hmm. and sitting here and, and sharing your heart and your experience, your history with us. Is there anything that you'd like to say or share before you move? Book a tour. Book a tour. How you book a tour? Book a tour www.africanamericanmuseum.org 
the first African-American museum in Louisiana. Come and see us in Donaldsonville. And we'd like to thank Ms. Hambrick, Kathy E. Hambrick, for being <laughs> here today. And we thank you for being part of Caltech. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Man can shackle the hand, man can shackle the feet, but only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time.